All right, look, let's read Matthew 5, 21 to 26. And I'd say we should all read together. So let's start in Matthew 5, 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, and remember, that brother has against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come, offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out hence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. You can be seated, sorry. This morning we plan to continue the series of sermons going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, preaching on the passage that we just read or quoted together. I have a few comments to make before getting into the actual sermon. Uh, many of you recall that uh, I think it was the end of June when I encouraged or challenged you to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. So that's been five months ago. And I just want to encourage you, if you're working on that, don't give up. Keep at it. And uh, I don't know exactly what your goal was. I indicated different people may have different goals. If you're not able to do the whole thing, maybe you have part of it or something to do. I have about uh, 15 verses left. And I know there are many people here who have um, memorized the whole thing and can quote it well. Also, another comment that I had mentioned uh, some of you had expressed some interest on uh, getting together when you have this memorized and uh, just having a little bit of informal quizzing on the passage. And I found that idea to have some appeal, but it's really up to you. It's not something that I'm going to um, push. If you want to do that, you will need to let me know. And if it's something you wish to do, I'll need to hear from you uh, fairly soon at least from a couple people who are willing to get teams together. So if I don't hear from some people soon, I probably will not mention it again. I was thinking of doing it probably in, in January or February before the official quiz season has ended, the beginning of March. But if you have some input on that timing, I'm, I can be uh, flexible in that as well. And another thing I'd like to mention here a little bit before getting into the sermon itself is your feedback. I do appreciate your feedback. And several, I've heard several of you comment on this concept of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Do these expressions refer to the same thing or is it something entirely different? And there are different perspectives on that question. I had indicated in an earlier sermon that I think they may be referring to the same thing. And I'm not here to insist on that. Uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this here this morning. And uh, there's, there's a number of observations that influenced me to say that I think they may be referring to the same thing. And I'm going to give some of those to you. And then as well as looking a little bit um, at the other perspective as well. So the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Now this isn't the title of the sermon. It's just a little bit of preliminary here. Uh, for one thing that I mentioned before is that the expression the kingdom of heaven is found only in the Gospel of Matthew. 32 times in the New Testament, and every one of those times it's only in the Gospel of Matthew. However, the other Gospels and the epistles use the term the kingdom of God frequently. It's found uh, in 10 different New Testament books. So this could make it appear that one person's 
choice of words was the kingdom of heaven, whereas other writers' choice of words was the kingdom of God. Another thing to keep in mind is that Matthew was writing specifically to the Jews. The other gospel writers were targeting perhaps a bit broader audience. Matthew was writing specifically to the Jews. They were very familiar with the kingdom concept and so forth, so that may have influenced it as well. Another factor that influenced my thinking is that these two different phrases are sometimes used by different writers when they're referring to the very same quote or event or conversation of Jesus. And I have several examples of that that I'm just uh, projecting here. Two verses referring to the same teaching of Jesus where one writer uses one term and the other writer uses another term. Matthew says in chapter 4, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, the same account, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Another example in the Sermon on the Mount, right at the beginning, uh, Matthew 5, 2 and 3, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Luke's account of this in chapter 6, verse 20 and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then in Matthew chapter 13, verse 7, uh, teachings of Jesus, a little bit later on, he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. I think I jumped ahead there. Matthew 13, 11. Because he said, It is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. And Luke chapter 8, verse 10, in the very same concept, context, this is explaining the parable of the, the sower who went out with his seeds and put it into different soils. In Luke, he says, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables. So, do these words of Jesus refer to one thing when written by one gospel writer and something else when written by another gospel writer? Um, this would have been another, another factor. And then the third thing is that it appears that Jesus himself used these terms interchangeably. Note these verses in Matthew where Jesus makes a statement and then kind of repeats it for emphasis. The first time he makes a statement, he uses the one term, the second time, he uses the other term. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So these were some of the factors that influenced my statement that I think the two phrases may be used interchangeably. At the same time, I acknowledge that they are not proof and that there are other perspectives. Um, one perspective, and, and if you study this, you, you see that there are, are quite, a, quite a few different ideas about this. One perspective is that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom which involves our spiritual lives, whereas the kingdom of heaven is a literal kingdom established here on the earth. And people who propose this would generally say that the literal, physical kingdom of heaven is yet to be established when Christ returns, when he comes back and establishes his kingdom here during the millennium, something in the future. And uh, so there's several aspects of this. One aspect is that the kingdom of heaven is physical and the kingdom, excuse me, the kingdom, yeah, the kingdom of heaven is a physical kingdom and the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And some people use Romans chapter 14, verse 17 to support that where it says, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. They say, see here, the kingdom of God is not physical. The kingdom of God is spiritual. 
and then go on to, to build on that that the kingdom of heaven is physical. But to come to that conclusion from this verse is to take it out of context because the context of this whole passage is about the differences of convictions between Christians. And he talks a lot about whether it's right to eat meat or whether it's not right to eat meat. Some people eat meat. Some people refrain from eating meat. And then he goes on to say, the kingdom of God is not about whether you eat meat or not. The kingdom of God is about much more than that. It's about spiritual issues. Verse 15 says, if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, you're not walking in love. Don't destroy him with your meat. And he comes back to this verse, for the kingdom of God is more, is not meat and drink, but righteousness. It's not about doing everything you can get away with, everything that, that um, you know, whether or not it offends your brother, but it's about experiencing the peace and joy. Now, another aspect of this kingdom that the, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom and the kingdom of heaven is a literal kingdom that's going to be established here on earth is that then the kingdom of heaven is some future kingdom that's going to come, you know, in the future. And if that is the case, I ask myself, why did John the Baptist and Jesus both say the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is here now? And why would the Sermon on the Mount, if it's addressing the issues of the kingdom of heaven, deal with all these issues of lust and anger and persecution and murder and hypocrisy, if it's going to take place in a perfect world? Well, there's another perspective as well. And this is a perspective that, that does resonate with me somewhat, but I... I don't have all the answers. This perspective is that the kingdom of God pertains to everything that exists, everything God created, everything that's under his domain, which would include all of heaven and earth, whereas the kingdom of heaven is a much more concentrated kingdom, which involves those who are surrendered to his will, applying to the spiritual realm. According to this idea, the kingdom of heaven would be within the larger realm of the kingdom of God. Now, there are some aspects of this, this latter understanding, like I said, that, that resonate with me. But I think this is a, a broader subject than what we can really conclude here in this sermon. I just wanted to kind of throw it out again because we mentioned it before and several of you mentioned that to me. And I am... I welcome further input on this question. I think it's a subject that would merit a sermon sometime. Maybe uh, one of the other pastors want to uh, tackle that. Obviously, it's going to be a while till we get through the sermon here for myself. But if you have a word to share on that, uh, feel free. Maybe you have something uh, during um, testimony time. Okay, for the message for today. The text that we read from Matthew, Brothers and Adversaries, Kingdom relationships. How do we relate? A number of things are addressed in these six verses. A number of topics, a number of ideas, a number of words, a number of phrases. I'd like to pick out a number of these phrases to, uh, to address them here. Uh, beginning with verse 21. Verse 21, I would say, is pretty clear. Pretty straightforward. Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Pretty simple. Easily understood. It makes sense. We agree with it. And then verse 22 starts with the word, but. Indicating that maybe there is something that we are missing indicating that there's something more. Thou shalt not kill, but. What might there be in verse 21 that we are missing? Before we get into 22. 
Are we in this group guilty of murder? I'm just going to throw out a number of ideas here that, that I'd like to discuss here this morning. Are we guilty of murder, of killing? Now, I'm not aware of anyone here in this setting who has intentionally taken someone's life. But we need to think above the, or beyond that. We need to think more than that. Are there other things that we may be guilty of killing? What are some things that you think of that we might sometimes kill without realizing it? What are some murders that can take place even within the church simply because we do not love our brothers as we should? And I, uh, I listed, I'm listing three here, and I'm sure you could think of more. One of them is reputation. Have you ever killed someone's reputation? This can be done through gossip, through negative comments about a person. How many of us have been injured by something that someone else has said? I think most of us can identify with that at one time or another. How many of us have injured someone else by something that we have said to the point of perhaps even killing that person's reputation? I think this is something we need to be careful about. I well remember the words of my mother that she emphasized when we were growing up. Sometimes, of course, I had the tendency to say what I thought about someone. And I remember my mother saying, if you can't say something nice about someone, sometimes it's just better to say nothing at all. Or something else I remember hearing, if you have something negative that you need to say about someone, Think of five positive things to say about that person to go along with it. Those are, those are some challenging thoughts, and they go along with this idea of, are we killing a person's reputation? Jesus said, thou shalt not kill. We say, yeah, I agree with that. But what about a person's reputation? Are we killing their reputation? What about a person's motivation? Are we so critical always finding fault, that we simply destroy someone's motivation to do anything? Or do we encourage them and encouraging them build up their motivation? I have had people express appreciation about things in my life that I had never even really given a thought of. I remember one time when I was a youth, someone expressed appreciation to me for being in time. Well, I never really thought about being in time. It's just what you do. But since that point, I've thought about it a lot more. And to this point, I hate to be late to this day. I hate to be late for an appointment because it was something that someone encouraged in me in motivation. So do we motivate or do we kill motivation? And along with that, somewhat similar, is a person's ambition. Have you ever killed someone's ambition? Now, I was thinking this week of a, of a brother that I learned to know in Romania. And this brother was one of the most captivating preachers that I knew when I was in Romania. A local, local man there, a pastor of one of the churches. He would preach with power. You would just sit there and you would be utterly captivated. He was an effective evangelist. He was a prayer warrior. He had lots of life experiences that he shared. One time, and he was sharing a bit of a testimony, he told us a story. And before I get into the story, an example from his life, before I do that, I want you to understand that in Romania, poetry is a very significant thing. The Romanian language is a very poetic language. The, the structure of the grammar and the, the verb tense structure and the endings of the words lend itself very well to poetry. And poetry is a big thing. They have lots of poems, and it's not uncommon in church services for someone to stand up and quote a poem that might last 10 or 15 minutes. And this poem is so moving that it just has everyone spellbound. Often at weddings, people will share a poem for the, for the couple that's getting married. And this man that I was referring to, this powerful preacher, one time said, said, when I was young, perhaps a teenager, 
He said, one time I decided or I shared a poem in church. So it was the first time I attempted to do that. He said, it was an utter failure. It, it just didn't come out right. I forgot the words. I, I just couldn't remember. He said, finally, I just, I just gave up and quit. Totally embarrassed. He said, at that particular service, there was not one single person that came to me afterwards and said, thanks for trying. Don't be afraid to try again. I appreciate your effort. He said, I did not get one word of encouragement after that service. And he said, never in my life have I ever again tried to quote a poem in public. And that kind of surprised me because I thought he was a speaker that could do anything. But he said that one experience just totally destroyed, it totally killed his motivation and his ambition in that area. So, are we guilty of killing? The law said, thou shalt not kill. Jesus said, but there may be more to this than you are thinking of. Look for ways to give life. Be an encourager. Don't be a nagger. Focus on bringing life. Let's move on. What about this clause in verse 22? Without a cause. It says, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Now this phrase is found in the King James Version. If you have another version... Likely as not, it's not found in that version. Many other translations do not include that phrase. So that may bring the question to your mind, why not? Well, I've heard one explanation that when King James authorized this version to be published, he had a brother that he did not get along with, and he was very upset. And he wanted to justify himself, so he insisted that this phrase, without a cause, be included there before he authorized the version to be published to justify himself. Well, it's interesting to note, if you go back to the older manuscripts, that this phrase, without a clause, was found in manuscripts as early as 400 or 500 A.D. King James didn't live until the 1600s, so I don't think this phrase originated with King James. It was found in manuscripts before his time. But the King James is one of the few, but not the only, version to include this phrase. And it simply depends on um, what manuscript it was, uh, the, the particular version was translated from. So I don't think it was simply there, put there to please an erratic king. This these verses here, this section of verses where Jesus is talking about thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you, and what he is bringing into focus here is anger. And we're, we're going to be looking at this issue of anger quite a bit this morning. I have a number of questions. What is anger? Is there such a thing as righteous indignation or good anger? Is all anger wrong? These are some of the questions I'd like to look at. Jesus addressed this issue of angry. Anger, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Well, what is anger? First of all, it's an emotion. And anger often begins involuntarily. Something happens, something that we think is not right. Perhaps it's something that hurt me personally. Perhaps it's something that hurt someone else. Uh, someone's actions injured my reputation or someone else's, and we believe that what took place is not right. And there's this emotion of anger that we sense. And initially, that may come involuntarily. But anger is more than this initial emotion. It's also a response to our emotion. Now, sometimes something happens a particular event, and that very event may cause one person to become angry, and it may cause another person to laugh. You see, their response, their responses are different. 
And so it's an emotion, it's a response to the emotion, and it's a choice or a decision that we make. When we feel that response, we then make a choice. You may not be able to choose what happens to you. You may not be able to choose what other people do, but you can always choose your response. And we're going to address this more in detail when we get uh, farther on in this chapter. For example, verse 44, Jesus says, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus was teaching how to respond to people. So you cannot choose what they do, but you can choose your response. That's one thing I tried to teach our children when they were young. Whatever happens, your response is your choice. You may choose to get angry, or you may choose not to. Sometimes we might hear someone say, that really made me angry. Really? Did that make you angry? Or did you choose to get angry? Some things to think about. Well, what about this question, is all anger sin? Ephesians 4, verse 26 says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. This verse indicates that not all anger is sin, but that retained and nursed anger is sin. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. In other words, don't carry it with you. Now, it's interesting, as you look at this word anger in the Bible, in the New Testament, there are over 20 different words in the Hebrew and Greek languages that are translated anger in the King James Version. So, obviously, in the original language, it's addressing a lot broader um, range of, of responses. And we kind of summarize it with this word, anger. Now, these different, 20 different words can pretty much be broken down into two different categories, two different types of emotions. And one of them is an uncontrolled emotional response to a hurt. This is often accompanied by hostility, it's the red-in-the-face, fist-clenching, flaring-nostril type of response, that uncontrolled emotion, hostility. But the other type, the other category of these words refers to an expression of grief or sorrow, something that grieves you. This is often aroused by perhaps a conviction that I have or a, a strong opinion that I have. And I think this is a type of anger that Jesus showed in a number of situations. And I have one verse here, Mark 3, verse 5. I'll give you the setting of this verse. The Pharisees brought to him a man on the Sabbath day to see if he would heal them. So these Pharisees had no sympathy at all for that man. They were just trying to bring him to Jesus, to set up Jesus. And this verse says, when he, Jesus, had looked round about on them with anger being grieved. You see, his anger was an expression of his grief. For the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored, whole as the other. So you see, Jesus' anger was a, a sense of, of grief or sorrow at the hardness of people's heart. And it's interesting that the result of Jesus' anger in this sense was something positive. It wasn't something destructive. It wasn't a thing where he blew up and started striking people, but it had a, a positive response. So I may be grieved at an injustice or something that opposes my convictions. And that's a good response. But when it becomes a negative response is when I allow it to control my emotions in an unloving manner. At that point, it becomes sin. So we hear this term, righteous indignation. If, is there such a thing? And if so, what is it? Well, it may refer to the second definition here, an expression of grief or sorrow over something that opposes 
my convictions. And as such, I would say it could be righteous. However, if we use it to describe the first definition here, simply to defend ourselves or to justify ourselves, I would say it tends to be unrighteous indignation. So I think you can kind of understand the point there. Let's move on and look at four stages of cancer. And I use these, these four... Cancer, I'm not sure where I got that. Four stages of anger. <laughs> I guess I was thinking of stage four. Four stages of anger. And I get these points from John Koblenz when he was sharing about anger. He says, first of all, there is the emotional stage, which I mentioned before. It has to do with our feelings. How I feel when someone does something that I perceive to be wrong. And like I said, this phase may be involuntarily, involuntary. But when we nurse it, that is a question. Will we nurse it and develop? Or will we respond in a way that is fitting for children of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven? So first of all, there is the emotional stage. Then there is the mental stage. And this is where we begin to go down the wrong path when I begin just mauling over this thing that happened and I begin turning it over in my head, I think about it, I replay it in my mind, I retain it, I hang on to it. I let the sun go down and I'm still reliving it. You see, retained anger is when it becomes sin. And then we can move on to the verbal stage where I begin murmuring. I begin talking to other people about what happened, what I'm upset about. I place blame. I talk about it in an unprofitable way. And I may say things that are hurtful to other people. And then it goes on to the heart stage, the fourth and final stage. And this is where that bitterness just continues to grow within my heart. I play the, vol the role of a victim because of what this person has done. And when I take it to heart, I'm going to show it in my actions. And I will do things either actively or passively to try to hurt that other person. So the four stages of anger, the emotional stage, the mental stage, the verbal stage, the heart stage. Now you notice that, that stages two, three, and four here are going down the wrong path. I would like to suggest an alternate route. We experience that initial emotional stage, but rather than just mulling it over in our minds and going to the mental stage, let's pray about it instead. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And maybe if this is on my mind, the step for me to do is just to confess to God how I feel. Take it to God. Tell him about it. You know, God, I'm, I'm really bugged by what happened here. This just really irritates me, and I'm, I'm really bothered by that. And talk to God about it instead of just mulling it over in my own mind. So pray. Bless. Matthew 5, I referred to that verse earlier. Jesus said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. We see the prayer aspect here again and also the blessing. This is a proactive approach. Find a way to bless that person. Will it be easy? It may not be easy, but it's an alternate approach. And then the final aspect is to forgive. Pray, bless, and forgive. Luke chapter 17 Jesus said to his disciples, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. In other words, you're going to get upset. People are going to do things. Things happen. You're going to be offended. It's impossible to avoid that. And it says, but woe unto him through whom they come. But then he says, rather than focusing on him, he says, take heed unto yourselves. So don't just keep mulling over this other person, but think about yourself and your response. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. 
And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. These are the words of Jesus. Now, it's easy for me to look at this verse from Luke, where it talks about forgiving, and I'll say, yeah, it says if he repents, I'm supposed to forgive him. What if he doesn't repent? Then I'm off the hook, right? Well, I would say, let's just follow the example of Jesus. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, how many of those soldiers repented for what they did? How many of those Jews yelling, crucify him, repented for what, he, for what they did? What was Jesus' response? He forgave anyway. Several things that anger is or anger does. And several verses from Proverbs. First of all, anger is a burden. Proverbs 27 verse 3 says, A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both. Now, I don't know how many of you ever lifted a sack of sand. It's heavy. But the, the writer of Proverbs here is saying, but anger is even heavier. So if you are carrying anger around, it's just like carrying this sack of sand with you everywhere you go. You come to church, you're carrying this sack of sand. And you don't put it down on the bench beside you. You, you sit there holding it. You take it with you to work. You take it with you when you return home. You take it with you when you go to bed. No, you do not put it down beside you. It's on top of you all night long. Anger is a burden. It doesn't cause others to suffer. It causes you to suffer. If you would carry this sack of sand with you everywhere you go, it's not going to cause others to suffer. Ah, yeah, they'll think you look weird. But that's how it is when you carry anger with you. Anger is a burden. It's also a foolish decision. Proverbs 14, 17 says, He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly. Now, there are some things that we would consider to be very foolish. For example, if you're looking forward to taking your driver's test to get your driver's license, you're probably not going to stop at a bar and have a couple beers right before you go to take your driver's test. That would be very foolish for more reasons than one. Carrying anger is foolish. It causes you to do foolish things, and it's going to have foolish results. And it also brings loneliness. Proverbs 22, 40, 24 says, Make no friendship with an angry man. With a furious man thou shalt not go. Sometimes we think, if somebody offended me, I need to show my anger towards that person in order to gather people's sympathy for me so that they can see how much I was hurt. But that's not how it works. Anger does not get people's sympathy. It will do the opposite. It isolates you. Let's move on in this verse. We were talking about anger. Jesus says, Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. What does Raka mean? Have you ever heard that word anywhere except in this setting? And we've heard it there, we read it, and we don't think about it. What is the meaning of these terms? Well, Raka in this setting was simply a derogatory term, which basically meant somebody is empty-headed or worthless. If you address someone with that term, you were trying to make them feel stupid or inferior and telling them that, yeah, you're, you're worthless. And basically, it referred to their mental capacity. You know, you, you just don't have it. We have other expressions today. Um, you know, whatever, two bricks short of a load. Just indicating that somebody doesn't have it. Jesus was warning against this thing of calling people's names, calling people names, and using this as an example. The word fool 
has somewhat the same meaning. Good for nothing, no value. Rack attended to pertain a little bit more to the mental aspect of a person and being a fool may have pertained more to his moral aspect, somebody who just simply made foolish decisions, lived a life of foolishness. And it indicated that this person is not worth redeeming. Now also as I was looking at this verse, I wondered why does it say that the person that is angry will be in danger of the judgment, the person who says Raka shall be in danger of the council, the person who says, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell. What's the difference? What's the significance? The judgment, I believe here, the first expression, shall be in danger of the judgment, referred to the civil affairs of the day, the civil a court, the court that dealt with civil issues. If you killed someone, you were called before the courts, and they dealt with it, similar to the courts of our land. The council, on the other hand, referred to the Sanhedrin, which dealt with religious matters. So it's not just the civil matters, it's also the religious matters. And of course, we recognize that hellfire pertains to the judgment of God himself. And I think what Jesus was saying here, this whole matter of brotherhood relationships and how you get along with your brother and how you address your brother is not just a civil affair. It's not just what the country says, what the laws say. And it's not just a religious affair. It's not a matter of simply what the church says. But this is a spiritual affair. It's a matter of what God says. He was going from one to the other, building up to this aspect. We will need to answer to God himself for how we respond to our brothers. It's not just the laws of the land or the rules of the church. This is serious business. We might say, well, it's not a big deal. It's not going to make a difference. We'll get over it. But God sees, God notices, and we will need to answer to God. This thing of how we address one another, do we live by the letter or do we live by the spirit? When I was growing up, I would never have gotten away with calling someone a fool if my parents were nearby. That was just not the way you call someone. I would never have gotten away from it. I'd gotten away with it. Now, I may have gotten away with calling them some other things, but fool, no. Now, that's somewhat living by the letter. Simply because the Bible says you should not say thou fool, we cannot address them that way. But let's not just live by the letter, but by the Spirit. Remember, I said these words are derogatory, and they were words that were intended to make somebody feel worthless. And I was really challenged by this thought. How often do I say something to make someone feel just a little bit foolish? Someone may make a statement, and my response to their statement is just has a little bit of an edge to them to make it sound like uh, you really aren't too bright there in asking that or saying that. And in doing so, I am making that person feel like a fool. Do I realize the seriousness of that? That can kill. I remember an incident that took place when, when I was just uh, <coughs> quite young. Now, I lived on a farm, and I would see signs out in front of farms that said registered Holsteins. And I thought I knew what a Holstein was. So it was four-legged critters that you had to get up every morning to milk. But one time I thought about it, you know, to me, it was just another word for cow. But one day I wondered, well, why the different words? Why, why Holstein and why cow when they mean the same thing? So I asked someone, well, what's the difference between a Holstein and a cow? Days later, people were still talking about this boy that didn't know the difference between a Holstein and a cow. And at that point, 
I learned that if I don't want to be laughed at, I better not ask questions. I better find some other way to figure out the matters of life. You see, their response made me feel foolish. And it gave me the tendency to just clam up. And I'm still sensitive to that today. I try very hard never to laugh at someone's innocent question. Now, if it's a question given in a, a joking matter, you understand. But allow people to ask questions without making them feel like a fool. How often do I make someone feel like a fool? Jesus says, that's serious business. Don't belittle someone. Our goal is to encourage them, to lift them up. Remember, we don't want to kill their ambition. Moving on to verses 23 and 24, briefly. I think these verses can be summarized. Do not live a life of hypocrisy. Verses 23 and 24 talk about bringing your gift to the altar and bringing your, your gifts to God, coming to the altar before the crowds of people, presenting a gift while on the back of your mind you know you have these unresolved relationships. Jesus is saying, first take care of your business and then do your public service, whatever it may be. Several verses that would go along with that. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? I think that's what Jesus is getting at in these verses. If you're not getting along with your brother, you don't love your brother, don't come to church and proclaim how holy you are by the gifts you give, by your service to God, or whatever it may be. First, take care of those issues. Another example in the Old Testament where Samuel told Saul, when Saul did not obey God, but he said he's doing it so he can offer a sacrifice to God. Samuel says, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Finally, you are responsible. Verses 25 and 26. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. You see, how your brother or adversary relates to you is his choice. You may have little to do with that. How you relate to him is your choice. And how you respond to what he does is your choice. No matter what they do, you choose how you will respond. Now, we've been talking a lot this morning about people, actions, their responses. And when I think of adversaries, I normally think of people. But I'd like to broaden the application here just a little bit this morning. Sometimes circumstances are our adversaries. And there's circumstances that are out of our control. And we become angry. Maybe I'm in, a, in an accident. An accident that's very costly. Maybe I become ill, I lose my health. Maybe my spouse becomes ill and it totally changes my life. He's not the person to live with that he was before. Maybe someone I die, someone I love dies, leaving me feeling lonely and vulnerable. These are circumstances that we can see as our adversaries. And our tendency may be to become angry, to lash out in bitterness. But I think even in these, we need to consider our response. We are responsible to how we will respond to our adversaries. My response is a choice. In conclusion, there is 
a right response for every circumstance, for every situation, and for every person I meet. And I am the one who chooses my response. No, I'm not going to go out and kill that person. We would never resort to that. But do I kill his reputation? Do I kill his ambition, his motivation? Or do I encourage him? Do I give life? And in all of these situations, we need to focus not on the offender and not on the offense, and not even on myself and how I feel about it, but focus on God. Focus on Christ and the teachings of his kingdom. And let's have a response that is becoming to a child of the kingdom. I'll close with James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. We could say slow to anger. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. We'd like to come to prayer, and I invite those of you who are able or care to to kneel with us as we pray. Lord, we thank you again for the teachings of your kingdom. Thank you for the teaching this morning on relating to our brothers and to our adversaries, whether they be people or events, that we would have a kingdom response. And Lord, we, we acknowledge, we confess that sometimes we, we feel that emotion of anger arising within us, but we also recognize that there is a right and a wrong way to respond to that. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us the beauty of your example of responding in love and care and in a way that would bring glory to God. May you give us the grace to respond in a Christ-like way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.